This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R. We work out our bodies. Let's work out our minds. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off your first month. You're like, what is BetterHelp? Why would I go there? Because it's it's online therapy, baby. That's right. You don't have to sit in traffic. Uh, It's cheaper. It's international. So wherever you are in the world, your therapist can go with you. And you don't even have to sit in an office. The best thing is you can do this from your phone. Uh, You can text. You can call. Within 48 hours, they're going to match you up with your own therapist. Some people have their own chef, their own personal trainer. You get your own therapist. How cool is that? And here's the best part. If you don't like the therapist, you can just find yourself another one. You know, They will match you up with another therapist. Because I have friends who are looking for therapist right now and they're saying how hard it is to find one everybody everybody got a therapist now it seems like nowadays so get one and and if you're one of those people who are like well my life is good everything's good i don't need a therapist that's why now is the time to get one because when life hits the fan and and inevitably it does right uh that's not the time to look for a therapist because it takes time to build rapport to connect for them to know your backstory, for you to feel comfortable. So get a therapist now, somebody that you can talk to, build a relationship with, and then you can take a break. But then you have, you know, you got that therapist in your pocket when things do hit the fan, when life does punch you in the face. And then you got that, now it's not even a therapist you're calling, it's a friend, but it's a friend who's gonna, who's gonna like make you feel safe and secure and hold all your secrets and, and show you how to grow and get unstuck. It's, it's the best friend in the world, right there in your pocket, on your cell phone. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off your first month now. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Emmy Neatfeld, who is the author of the memoir, Acceptance. She tells a story of going from homeless to Harvard, struggling with anorexia, drugs, uh, Adderall, Wellbutrin, a number of other drugs, self-cutting, mom being a hoarder, her dad transitions, and there's so much more in between. Welcome to the podcast, Emmy Neatfeld. Emmy, at the age of 13, you attempted to end your life. What events led you up to that moment? I grew up in Minnesota. And I had both my parents were married. We were very religious, um, but my parents had a pretty tumultuous relationship that imploded um, when I was about nine. And after that, my parents divorced and my mom won full custody and um, my other parent just moved away. And my mom was a hoarder. So we lived in this house that had piles of detritus everywhere stacked waist high every surface even the kitchen counter cabinets were pulled out for stuff to for extra space to put stuff on and um I was really really miserable in this environment and getting really sick physically um and I did go to therapy and instead of really listening to what was going on I was prescribed medication first Um, Concerta and Adderall for ADD, which turned into antidepressants and then antipsychotics. And my life felt just completely hopeless. Like there was no way out of this situation. 
and I couldn't imagine things ever being better. Yeah, talk to me more about the hopelessness because I think a lot of people confuse hopelessness with helplessness. And as you mm -hmm. mentioned, hopelessness is like, I can't imagine things becoming better. Uh, can you talk to us more about that feeling of hopelessness? It's so interesting that people people confuse hopelessness with helplessness since I think they're actually, in my case, we're really related because I was, I was a, you know, a young teenager and a child and I was kind of stuck in the situation. Um, there was really nowhere else for me to go. And um, I was really miserable, but I didn't really understand why, because my mom would really downplay the situation. Even though we both got asthma, we had mice everywhere in the house. She was like, you know, it's not that bad. Like I have stuff, it's messy, but like we're, we're clean. And, um, and I thought that my misery was like coming from inside of me. Right. And part of that was the way that I was being treated by physicians. This was back in like 2005. Um, but where, you know, they took this kind of biochemical approach of you have messed up chemicals in your brain. We're going to try to fix that with drugs. And after they tried a dozen drugs in two and a half years, I was like, if none of these pills fix me, like what is ever going to make me feel better? Right. And they were even like, to me, you know, once my psychiatrist told me, she's like, it's probably like cancer. Like you'll feel better for a little while and then you'll go back and you know, your cancer will flare up and you'll need more brutal, like chemical chemotherapy for your brain. And that really got me down. That really depressed me. And so, yeah, the misery goes, you know, the, the misery then, you know, develops into depression. And that's interesting because I think that misery is something that a lot of people don't aren't aware of and they don't tap into. And they're not aware that that is a, a precursor for some people into depression it's not just depression there there are feelings that come before that and so were there side effects with the medications that they're putting you on oh yeah i was on one that made me unable to recall words so i'd be just like trying to figure out what is this word what is this word and it stuck with me for a really long time um in one of them like my hair started falling out um, and when I did, uh, attempt suicide when I was 13, I was going through withdrawal for, uh, Lexapro. And at the time, you know, they said like withdrawal is not a big deal. Like nobody feels anything from it, which today they think, you know, today your doctor will be like, Hey, like have a plan, like, you know, like, like let's monitor you. Um, but back then it felt like the wild west. You talked about plan, and I'm glad you mentioned that because in the book, you also talked about how you hated the word safety plan when you were in a psych ward. And I was like, oh, my God, why? And then you you, you didn't share why. So I need to know why. <laughs> why did you hate safety plan? Tell me. It felt like such a euphemism to me because I I knew I was like, OK, these people need me to sign this document so that if I do anything, they're not going to be legally responsible. That was like cynical 13, 14 year old me. Um, and 
yeah, I guess I can see why, you know, if you're entering into that kind of willingly, you'd be like, oh, it's not necessarily, you know, being safe is great, right? Um, but when it's something that's like foisted on you, it feels a little bit different. Yeah. And because at the foundation of this all, you're still not feeling like people are listening to you. Like you're not being heard in terms of like, it's not me. It's like, come look at the house, look at the detritus. It's causing asthma. Like I'm literally getting sick from this. Talk to me more about feeling heard or feeling unheard, if that makes sense. I When I was going through treatment, I felt like all of it was about like me and my own choices. And so looking at the safety plan, it was like, okay, Emmy, how do you not do anything bad? That's what the safety plan is. And if you'd asked me like, what would be my, what would be safety for me? I would have been like, you know, living somewhere else, <laughs> like having emotional support, um, you know, having, being able to like go to school and have hobbies and friends and so it was so much responsibility put onto my shoulders when I was too young to vote, too young to drive. And I was often like trapped in these situations, like my mom's house or later in this locked treatment facility. Well, it's interesting because you had, it seems like you were aware of this need to, you know, be in a different space, have emotional support. And in the book, you share that you had this overwhelming sense of keeping peace and making adults happy as a child and recognizing that if I keep adults happy, then that'll bring peace. Uh, how do you reconcile with that uh, feeling now of like wanting to keep the peace, but also recognizing that where you are is not safe? Mm. That's a great question. Um, I feel like, you know, as a kid, my survival, like all kids survival really depends on keeping their caretakers happy. And so it was this, it felt like this impossible dilemma for me between, okay, do I make my mom happy? Do I make these doctors happy? Or do I keep asking for and fighting for what I know in my heart that I need? Um, and it's, that's definitely still a struggle as an adult because I, you know, I don't think you just let go of that desire to please people that's so ingrained in you. Um, but it, it is definitely easier to make those choices that, you know, might, might upset people, but that are what I need to do. Um, because I'm not, you know, relying on other people to, um, you know, for my basic needs. Yeah. How do you handle that upset? Because I think a lot of people struggle with setting boundaries in mm -hmm. relationships, whether it's at home or at work where, you know, because we live in such a grind culture, show up early, stay late. And, you know, in your book, you know, you, you talk about like the the dark side of this whole push to be resilient. Um, how do you like what's the cognitive process or thinking? when you have to set boundaries that you are pretty sure is going to upset someone else? Oh man, I'm like the biggest people pleaser. I get so, so nervous when I think about 
doing anything that could even like inconvenience someone else. Um, so this is something that I am constantly working on and that I had to think about a lot when I was writing acceptance um, because I'm telling the story from my perspective, which is not my mom's perspective. It's not the doctor's perspective. And knowing that, well, actually for a while I was like, maybe I was trying to write this book in a way that wouldn't upset anyone. And I was like, there's got to be a way to find a version of the story that will make everyone happy and that we all can agree on. And then writing it, I started to realize like that actually is completely impossible. So that was one of the first times in my life that I had to be like this. It ac- I actually literally cannot please everyone and stick to facts. And so that was kind of the first experience for me. And so I feel like I dealt with that a lot with family. And now I'm trying to deal with that in like my professional life and my like friends. And it's, it's always a struggle. And I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, so many uh, YouTube videos and podcasts are like, how to free yourself and how to never struggle again. And, and, you know, never people please. And I'm like, never really anyway, <laughs> um, you know, part of the, the manifestation of, you know, living in kind of a chaotic household, um, was anorexia. And you shared in the book how, you know, after throwing up and cutting yourself, you felt calm. What brings you calm now? That's a great question. I love to read. Just as I did as a kid, I, it just, it, it feels like when I read, it's like a palate cleanser. Like the real world can kind of finally get wiped away. And I also take a lot of pride in my home and in my surroundings. And so I am about to move into a new apartment. And over the last like year, I've been planning kind of every detail and that like the research process, the design process, the physical like DIY stuff, all of that just makes me feel really taken care of and grounded. And Like, I think a lot of the self-harm that I did was a response to being in such unpleasant situations and coping with such just painful sensations that it feels like such a gift to be able to give myself good feelings and a good environment. Yeah, you know, because in the book, part of your journey was also getting involved in rowing. And what was interesting is you shared how you you felt this need to have someone telling you what to do and putting you on a schedule and a structure. And I played college football and the same thing. Like I, if you look at my transcripts, I was a straight A student during the season. And then I was a F student in the off season. Like it literally <laughs> like Dean's list on during the season and then off season, like just in the trash. Um, <laughs> so now that you're out of school, I know you're, you're working. How do you provide that structure for yourself? Where is that coming from? Oh, that's hard. Um, so I was working in tech for a number of years 
And the between balancing writing acceptance and doing my day job, I had structure by virtue of if I didn't like work really focused, like all these hours, I just would not get anything done and I, everything would pile up. Um, and then I've been writing full time for a little bit over a year. And I, so I've been trying to make that structure for myself and I have, you know, I've really benefited from like self-help books and stuff. Like I actually really enjoy, um, reading how other people do like do anything. Like, how do you just sit down and like make words come on a page and then make them make sense? So I try to, I, I was trying to do like four hours a day of really focused writing and editing. Um, and that takes up my whole day. Like I can't like (laughs) the four hours you have to have lunch, you know, all that stuff. So, um, that's the way, I don't know. That's the way I've been able to do it. But I also, you know, I have an editor and my people pleasing tendencies can be really good. And like, I want to meet the deadlines. I want to like make her happy. So I do, I do let myself lean into that. And I've been trying to like, let other people support me and bug me to get stuff done a little bit. What, and when you're in a psych ward and they're throwing this mm-hmm. cognitive behavioral and dialectical behavioral stuff at you and it's like your your thoughts are causing your feelings and you're like no it's all the stuff around me um what besides listening to you and hearing you out and you know maybe finding you a, a healthier support system or at least bringing your mom in and the three of you working it out what um benefits if any did you derive from cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy was there any benefit at all so i went through cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy a few different times i had a lot of it when i was an early teenager and especially when i was in residential treatment and then i also went through it again a few years ago as an adult. And when I was a teenager, it felt really like blaming to me because I, I didn't have a choice in the matter. I had to go and we were being given it because, you know, that's what the evidence says works. And, but cognitive behavioral therapy kind of operates on the premise that people are struggling because their thoughts are distorted. And, you know, I certainly did have distorted thoughts, but for me and for a lot of the other kids who were there, our primary problem was not in our heads. It was in our lives around us. And so back then I would have killed to just be able to vent, like, let me vent, let me tell you what's going on. And to get that sympathy of like, this situation sucks and one day you're going to grow up and you're going to be able to make your own choices and you're not going to rely on these people who are unreliable and not there for you. To hear someone just letting you know that a situation sucks, it's so relieving. Like it doesn't take much to feel heard and validated, you know, just to be like, hey, this is what I'm going through. And be like, man, that sucks. Thank you. That's it. 
end end of sentence. You know, in the book, you shared how anorexia seems like the price of privilege. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, people of people of all income levels, races, genders can all have eating disorders. And this is something that is much more commonly known now than it was back in the early 2000s, like 2010. And, but when I was in Minnesota, I was sent to this eating disorder clinic. I had just turned 14 and I was way too skinny. And the people there were all from this totally different class background than me. You know, my family was like working class. My mom was a crime scene photographer in a government union. And the girls there were from these really rich suburbs. And they they had been given this therapy that was like completely different than my therapy, right? Where I felt like I had been told like, you're the problem, you're bad, you need to be medicated. While they're they were treated like their anorexia, which because most of them, you know, that's why we were on this inpatient unit, that it was a manifestation of being like too perfect. Like they just had too much self-control, too much energy, and they had just turned it towards themselves. And all that they had to do was turn it towards a separate goal. And then they would have like the happiest lives on the whole planet. And it seems like a very kind of stereotypical way to think about anorexia or eating disorders in general, but it was what I encountered from these health professionals. And so are you still struggling with uh, any type of eating disorder now? I feel really grateful that I was able to mostly get away from that. Um, I definitely turned to exercising too much when I was in college as a way to kind of manage, manage my feelings, um, manage symptoms of PTSD, which I did not recognize at the time. Um, and so I'm definitely working on getting, um, always, you know, on, I think it's a struggle for like basically every person in the modern world, right? How do I, how do I like feed myself and take care of myself so that I'm healthy, but without making the healthiness, like stress me out and make me miserable. Yeah. Uh, in the book, when you shared about the boyfriend that you dated for a few years and, you know, how on, on, on the levels of abuse that, you know, you undertook the one thing that you said you, you loved about him was the fact that he would push you to do more than you thought you were capable of. Do you feel that from, because I know you're married now, do, is that one of the things that drew you to your husband now, or is that something that you found internally, that, that, that internal drive, or do you still feel that need to have someone externally push you? With my ex, when we broke up, I realized that we treated each other like computers, we acted like, okay, we're each this like ra fully rational, like program. And we just need to like, basically demand change, demand that we're different. And there was a lot of like punishment going on in the relationship, right? More him punishing me than vice versa. 
but that was kind of the way that we related to each other. And when I met Byron, who, spoiler alert, I married, I was determined that I was going to do things differently. And I had read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People and by Dale Carnegie. That book, it really, it actually really, really helped me just learn how to have like normal conversations, how to relate to people because my family was so dysfunctional. Like I never had a model for that. And it just helps me like, yeah, it helped me make just like normal friends in college. Right. And it teaches you like, don't be negative. Like remember people's names, that basic stuff. And one of the tenants is like, don't criticize people. And so when I met Byron and we started dating, I decided I was like, I'm not going to criticize him. And I went six months before saying like a single critical thing. And like this guy, like I always thought he was cute, but he only had one pair of, he had one pair of running shoes that he wore 90% of the time and one pair of like scuffed, like thrift store, like dress shoes. And that was it. And I mean, I got him new shoes. We took him shopping, got him a haircut, all without a word of criticism. And eventually he was like, I can tell you want me to do something. And like, please just tell me what you want me to do. Like, don't stop messing with me. Um, at which time the floodgates opened. But I think it was a much healthier way for me to enter into that relationship where we really have a strong sense of accepting each other. And, you know, I might want things to be different or I might want to change, but I do feel like he loves me exactly as I am. And I love him for that too. I love that. Yeah. I read somewhere and it may have been from Dale Carnegie where he said, praise the person, criticize the system. And Mm. that I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I like that right there. How do you, um, you talked about how your former relationship was one of punishment. And I think that sometimes our intention is to hold the other person accountable, to hold them responsible, but it comes out as punishment. Like my mom punished me as a child. Like I, I received, you know, whippings, beatings, things like that. But the, but the intention was to hold me accountable for what I had done. Um, how do you find the balance between that? That's such a deep question. I think that's something we're trying to figure out as a society right now on so many different levels. I I feel like a lot of it comes down to comes down to what you're willing to do to make someone else comply with your agenda, right? Where I think that there's a lot there's like a spectrum of abuse in many situations, right? Where something well-meaning can become abusive when you don't really know the limit, you know? And when when you think, okay, this person is going to do what I want at any cost. And I think one of the things, one of the trademarks of love is having power and choosing not to use it to hurt someone. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. And you, you, you were talking about books earlier, and I know that one of your favorite books is uh, The Stranger by Albert Camus, which 
I don't know. I read that like a year ago. I forget why. Somebody recommended it to me. Oh, I think because I, I just love his quotes. And, uh, and I picked it up. And what I loved in the book was there was a scene where he goes, a man can never be bored if, he, if, if, he, if he's only lived one day because of the memories. There's so much that happens in one day for you to replay and savor and pick apart that one day or a million years. Uh, it's enough to stop a man from boredom. But something else about the book resonated for you. What was that? I liked that Merceau did not agree with the dominant narrative. Like there was a story that people wanted him to say, like, I killed this man for such and such a reason. And it wasn't, it didn't ring true to him. So he just refused to tell that story, even though it came at great personal cost. And I think I love that story so much because I wished that I could be like that. I wish that my life could be like Marceau's life where I just was going to be completely authentic and I was never going to say anything that didn't ring true to me because of course I was in these situations where that's exactly what I had to do. Like I had to just tell adults like what they needed to hear. Otherwise, you know, there was no, there was no real future for me. And, you know, I think that's a powerful thing because I think we all are trying to write that line between authenticity and honesty and integrity, but also like move forward and push our agenda forward. And it really does come down to, you know, Yuval Harari talks about this in Sapiens and how story is one of the two things that connects humanity and has allowed us to grow. And it's really about discovering um, and creating the story that you're telling yourself. And it, it doesn't make one true over the other. It's just what your perspective is. You, it seems like you brought in a lot of help and had a lot of collaboration in forming your story. It seems like it's a great way to approach even mental health and dealing with our trauma, like versus just going to one therapist, like talking to different people and then kind of crafting your story from there. Does that resonate with you on some level? Definitely. I actually spent the first few years of writing the book pretty much in my own head. Like I had one person who is who saw it, but I was trying to just figure it out on my own. And I kept writing the same scenes, the same stories, like often in exactly the same words. I would just keep looping over it again and again. And eventually I started asking people for feedback, like, you know, it, colleagues, friends, like strangers that I met at restaurants, even I'd be like, here's this manuscript. Will you read it and tell me what you think? And <laughs> I don't recommend that to any, to other writers out there. Like I had like a hundred people read it, which is like 90 too many, but it was really useful to me to get that perspective on my life you know, to have people read the story and say, like, I felt so sad for you or, um, you know, I was so proud of you because it was this, it was actually this process of receiving empathy and receiving a type of like consideration and thought from people that had really been missing in my life. And having those outsiders bringing them in was what I really needed to understand 
what happened. Like it was a confusing, complicated time where I heard one version of the story, but that version was not the full thing. And so I really relied on all these other people to help understand the truth. The, you know, which brings me back to your mom and the hoarding. It wasn't just hoarding. You shared her backstory of when she was a child and her parents made her, I think, like do calisthenics and, you know, limited what they ate. So did your mom, you know, push the kind of that like thin agenda on you or did you pick that up subconsciously from her? It was definitely something that was in the air. Both of my parents were a little bit older and neither of them was in very good health. And so I had this idea in my head that like people who were healthy, who were, who had intellectual lives, that they were all skinny. And that if I started to look like my parents that, you know, I was going to be seriously limited in what activities I could do, that nobody was going to think I was smart. So yeah, I grew up with these ideas super baked into my head of like, this is the good way to be. Yeah, because at Harvard, you know, and you talk about how, you know, people are taking Adderall to to be thin and to also study uh, late night. And, and nobody questions that. Nobody ever questions your drive to be great. And it's it's unfortunate because... I don't know what the unfortunate is, but it's just kind of sad that, you know, you're in Harvard. And so there's this like, I'm smart, um, you know, I'm in the 1% or whatever that is. And then you get there and you still, there's still like other levels to go. Now you're competing against the other Harvard uh, graduates and you're like, oh, I got to do some, I got to do some extra, like I need some performance enhancing stuff to compete at this level, which is not something that you think of when you're trying to achieve that level. I definitely thought I was going to get there and it was just going to be, these are my people. Everybody's super intellectual. And I almost felt like the ultra competitive college admissions process, which I write about a lot, that it changed the students so that all that we could really think about was being competitive. and it was such a winner take all situation where each school has a certain number of spots. There's only a certain number of acceptances. And so you think in college, it's going to be exactly the same when really in reality, it was not. Yeah. Because I think a lot of us going to college is the idea of like finding our tribe, finding our group, finding friendships, but you, you find rivals and you find people that you, you have to um, go to war with and, uh, you know, you're fighting for internships and positions. And so you can't even enjoy college, it sounds like, because now you're thinking about life after college. So it, it, there's like this inherent anxiety that comes with that. Talk to me about your dad, you know, because in a, in a book you talk about how he transitioned. What, how old were you when he transitioned? And was there even a conversation with you about what was happening? So I was nine when my biological father, who I called Michelle in the book, um, when she transitioned and we had been super evangelical, gone to a number of different churches actually, but um, we're at an evangelical one and we 
I very much grew up with like this patriarchal figure in my family, which is why I refer to Michelle sometimes as my father, because that was like this family role. And then one day um, I got picked up from fourth grade and um, my father told me, you know, I'm going to change my name to Michelle. And I was not as surprised as you might think. I was like, I wanted to know the logistics. I was like, okay, are you a woman now? And she was like, yes. And I kind of accepted it. And, you know, and I could tell that there had been stuff on Michelle's mind that was like weighing her down for all these years. And it honestly was like a huge relief to me to have this kind of be in the open, at least between us and kind of know like, okay, this is what's going on. And she explained that like a lot of the times when she was super harsh or enforced these really rigid gender roles, it was because of like her own anxiety and stuff that was going on. Yeah. So did you and Byron sit down with each other and discuss gender roles within a relationship of like, you know, or was it just like, we're just going to talk things through as they go through? I feel like we've had a lot of conversations about this from, from the very beginning. Um, some, so he came from a really egalitarian family. Both of his parents were software engineers. His dad probably did more work around the house than his mom. And he also wasn't exposed to a lot of mainstream media, even though he was, he grew up without any religion. Like he doesn't know the pop songs like from back in the day, like they would listen to like opera and like NPR and I'm, and so then I get to be like, okay, have you ever heard the red hot chili peppers and play the song like Californication, like Tracy Chapman, fast car. It's really, it's really fun. It's like he came in a time machine, right? I'm not sure from the past or the future, but, um, but it's, I find that really, it's really refreshing with him where, you know, we have stuffed animals and we have like our own story of our family and in the family, like I'm the dad and he's the mom and it feels totally natural to both of us. Do you find that that energy changes from situation to situation? Like, is there, are there certain contexts where you feel more like the mom than the dad and vice versa for him? Or do you feel that across all situations and environments, your roles feels fixed? I think it's definitely fluid because, you know, we do that stereotypical thing where I'm the person who tends to plan social gatherings and he's definitely the person who kills cockroaches. Whenever there's a cockroach, I'm like, okay, here's the raid. Like I'm going down, I'm going for a walk around the block. (laughs) Um, but I, I appreciate that we can kind of like be there, be there for each other in these different ways. And that like, you know, sometimes I'm the strong one, sometimes he's the strong one and that we can have that kind of like give and take all the time. For the parents listening out there who have kids who might be struggling, how would you suggest that they initiate a conversation with them? 
you know, in your situation, it was, um, you know, it was, it was, it was your mom and the hoarding and, you know, and then the father wasn't there, the parents, you know, divorced, but for a, a parent who sees their kid in distress, how would you talk to them about talking to their kids? I think one of the best things that parents and other adults can do is to just ask kids, like, how are you feeling? What's bringing up these feelings? And to really take those emotions seriously. Because I think it's really easy, you know, as adults who've been through a lot of stuff and we kind of have perspective on our teenage selves or child selves, it can be really hard to kind of recognize and honor the magnitude of what young people are feeling. I also, I think whether someone is a parent or a teacher or a friend, that it meant so much to me just when people would ask me open-ended questions. Like when my photography teacher, you know, she just asked me like, do you miss living with your mom when I was in foster care? And she didn't even really have anything to say when I replied, but it meant a lot to know that she was like thinking about it and to know just like somebody cares. Asking open-ended questions, uh, you know, and just kind of being direct, like don't be afraid to be direct with your kids and say, I'm, I'm noticing, um, you know, you going to bed earlier or just like even noticing behavioral changes mm-hmm. uh, might be an easier way to, to get in. What advice do you have for kids who are trying to be heard by adults? Like when you look back at you're trying to get your mom to hear you and see your father, your uh, uh, and then the the institutions. Uh, is when you look back, is there something where you go, I wish I had said this, or I wish this was available, or if not to kids or just to the system in general? I wish that. I had recognized a little sooner that there's often the way that you feel about things, like the way that internally you think about it. And then there's a way that will get you heard. And I felt like telling the story in the version that would get me listened to, that felt like fake to me. It felt like lying. And I think it's because the struggle for authenticity is such a big part of being a teenager. Um, but I was really critical of myself when I, you know, when I used like the buzzwords that felt way too simple for my experience, like to say, oh, I'm homeless when I was sleeping in my car. Like that just felt like an oversimplification. And I think I wasn't old enough to realize like that that is what people are doing all the time right we have these kind of simplified ways of talking about things so that people who haven't been there can understand and i think if i were talking to my younger self about this i would say that you know it doesn't make you a bad person it doesn't make your experience any less complex and that kind of negotiating that like that tension between the inside feelings and like the outside presentation, that that's one of the trickiest things to me about growing up. Negotiating the inside versus the outside. You know, one of the best books I've read, I don't know if you read it called Never Split the Difference Mm. by Chris Voss. 
He's uh, you read it? Yeah, yeah, it's really good. And it that really helped me to uh, express my insides to match my outsides and be heard without because I could either be passive or aggressive, and that helped me be assertive in expressing myself. Uh, I, I, to me, if I had read that when I was a teenager, I, I think it would have saved me a lot of heartbreak um, yeah. and, and pain. The um, there was a, a part in the book where you talked about how, wait, what would you say? You said you wanted suicide, but feared dying at the hands of someone else. Um, to me, that denoted a feeling of powerlessness. And I bring this up to say that there are moments where I was in emotional distress, couldn't put my, I couldn't name it. I was like, what is this? Is it hopelessness, hopelessness? Am I? Then I was like, oh, I feel powerless. So talk to me about that, like you that that moment where you wanted to die by suicide, but at the same time, you don't want somebody to take your life. When I was a teenager, I really thought about suicide as this ultimate act of self-determination. And it was in part because I had authors who I really idolized who had died by suicide. And part of it was that you know, my, the circumstances of my life, it felt like I didn't have that many choices, you know, when I was still a minor. And so to me, it was like killing myself and having someone else kill me. It was like polar opposite, right? One is an act of like taking power and the other is like the ultimate powerlessness. And I think that the way that we talk about suicide really shaped the way that I used to think about it and the way that I think about it differently now, where it used to be like suicide was thought of a lot more as like a choice that people made. And there was like shame and stigma attached to it. And today it feels more like we talk about it as like the terminal stage of an illness or like something that kind of happens to someone. Um, and that actually, that way of thinking about it where it's less like active that actually made suicide seem a lot less appealing to me because it's no longer represented as this act of as this powerful act wow beautiful and and also if you could highlight the part where you're talking about your mom being with your dad and how uh, abusive that was and how your mom it seemed like your mom felt like she had no agency in that relationship. And then in the relationship with your ex-boyfriend, you felt like you had to succumb to his demands because he was taking care of you in so many different ways. Almost like you had no agency in that. How do you find, when you look back at, at those two moments of people struggling to find agency, would you frame it in the same way or is there another, uh, do you have another, another perspective on it today? I grew up with this sense that whoever takes care of you can kind of treat you however they want. And that if someone has the power to like mistreat you, that they're justified in using that power. And so my parents had this 
had this power imbalance from gender and from the gender roles of our religion. And um, it was really, really hard on my mom, right? There were, um, you know, it was a like abusive dynamic. Um, it was really, you know, it was difficult for both of them, but my, but it was really hard for my mom to imagine like being a single parent, like where would she get childcare, all this stuff. And, you know, and I, as a kid, like, you know, I was, I looked at them and I was like, well, if you were like stronger, you would just leave, you know, or like basically because my dad is giving you this, this support, like you kind of, you deserve it, frankly. Like that's how I thought about things. And I experienced this not just through my parents, but through these institutions, right? Through institutions that told me like, you're so grateful. You need to be grateful to be here. Like we're taking care of you. Like, how dare you say anything bad about us? So getting into a relationship that had that dynamic, it did feel really natural. You know, I had never lived in a way where I thought like, okay, I have needs and I can expect those needs to be taken care of while still being treated respectfully. That was just a total alien concept to me. Wow. Yeah. It, because, uh, and I love that and I appreciate you sharing that. Is there, is there any part of your journey, Emmy, that we haven't discussed that you feel would be of benefit to someone who may be thinking about ending their life? I looking back on really on the past couple of years, you know, this book acceptance, it is kind of dark. It's also funny, but it is a dark book in some ways. And it actually was a lot darker, like a few years ago, back in like 2018. Um, I wrote a version of it where digging into these difficult memories, I was like, I wasn't actively suicidal, but I was like thinking about, thinking about, you know, I was having the suicidal thoughts um, and just kind of contemplating it. And I think for me, it was really important to be completely honest about that. And I gave that version of the manuscript to, you know, to multiple people and to have those people that I trusted basically be like, we love you. Like, you know, you're not a bad person for thinking these thoughts for basically feeling like it's overwhelming and that at the time it seemed like there was no way that I could ever like not be in so much distress. So it was really important to me to kind of go into that, that dark place and let myself experience those memories again, like have those thoughts and accept that part of my life and that, you know, things might always be really d dark and that that could be okay too. And really embracing that was the only way that I was able to make progress and kind of get to a happier place. Yeah. I, 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 it's, it's, I want to like, I, I'm like, wow, I don't want to share this. I want people to read the book. But I think it's so important for the listeners who may not be able to get to it. You know, after you go from homeless to 
Harvard, and then you know you get married, and then you, you find that you're still struggling with these thoughts, and so you go back to therapy. Mm-hmm. Was there something from therapy at that stage in your life where, because was it? Because I'm sure there was this feeling of, oh, once I graduate Harvard, once I get married then I'll be free and and happy. And then you're like, oh, God, the thoughts are still here. That had to be a terrifying moment, I assume. Um, And so what was there any part of therapy that was beneficial for you at that stage? At that point, I had gone to a couple therapists. I had a therapist who was really, really unhelpful before that. And then I started a new therapy program and I was doing exposure therapy which is actually a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. And people are more familiar with it for phobia or OCD. But in my case, it was for post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was really like just going back over the worst moments of my life. And the therapist said, you know, the goal of this treatment is to accept what happened. And he didn't even mean like accept it in the final stage of grief, but literally like learn to live with like this happened to me. Like this is a thing that happened in my life. And it was like a 14 week like thing. So it wasn't that long. And it really took me from being in like acute distress, like every day to being able to like kind of have a much more like normal life right away. And so that was like extraordinarily helpful for me, even though CBT like earlier, it didn't help. Like this time I went into it like voluntarily and it really dramatically did. And and I definitely want to highlight that point because it's not just the therapy itself. It's do you feel forced into the therapy and how you feel like your approach to it and your open and, and, and willingness about whatever the therapy is. So they even say that about food, like they're like you can eat healthy foods, but if you feel like you're forced to eat a healthy food, Mm -hmm. your body won't digest it in a healthy way and uh, it can cause uh, some damage. So uh, so I appreciate you sharing that exposure therapy. uh, Wonderful. And last question, because, oh, well, I had two last questions. First, what is your favorite four syllable word right now? Because I know you brought that up in the book. You love four syllable words. Okay, I I really love the word penultimate. <laughs> I thought it might have changed. So you know what? I used that on stage the other night, and I realized I used it incorrectly. <laughs> no, I used it as ultimate. You know, meaning ultimate, and it's like right before ultimate. It's like second, right? It's like second place or something. Yeah, exactly. Like the second to last. Um, but in order to use that word, I feel like you really have to be on the ball because you can't wait too long. Like you have to be prepared, right? Yeah, I definitely dropped the ball on penultimate, and but the the audience didn't seem to catch it. So I think only you and I know the definition of penultimate, which is to my benefit. <laughs> uh, and then last question: uh, I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Emmy? The first thing that comes to mind is please read a book. 
And I feel like that feels really pat, but I feel like that's what would have helped me. Not pat at all. I tell my girlfriend that books are my best friend all the time. I'm like, I'm going to go hang out with my best friends for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and I always find some solace, some comfort, feeling of safety. Uh, I feel heard in books. Mm -hmm. So I uh, appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, Pick Up the Stranger. It's a thin book. Um, it, it's, it was actually tough for me to get into, but there were these tiny nuggets that just kept me going. I was like, oh, it was real. I like that. Anyway, uh, thank you, Emmy, for joining me. Thank you all for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help calling the 988 number or any of the international phone numbers if you're in Sri Lanka or Antarctica or, you know, Montana, wherever you are in the world. There are international suicide hotline phone numbers for you. You can call, you can chat, you can text, and you can go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Emmy. Thank you so much for having me, Leo.